Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Ano Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Welcome back, everyone, to the Irish Passport podcast, where we actually had a completely different theme planned for this episode. But considering recent global events, we felt we really had to look at this topic right now because we are recording on the 11th of October 2023 in the aftermath of an unprecedented lightning attack on Israel by Hamas and subsequent uh, deadly retaliation by the Israeli army. And all at the time of recording, uh, 2,000 are reported dead at the latest count and thousands more are injured. So how does this story involve Ireland? There are a few reasons and we're going to explain them to you in this episode. Firstly, as an EU member state, Ireland forms part of the EU response to this incredibly serious development. And secondly, Ireland has historically been among the most supportive of European countries to Palestinians. And thirdly, the Israel-Palestine conflict has for a long time formed part of the discourse of inter-community conflict in Northern Ireland, with loyalists tending to adopt support for Israel and Republicans more commonly supporting Palestinians. In this episode then, we're going to hear from some of Naomi's reporting about the current situation and about how the Irish government has been reacting to it. We'll also look at some of the historical context here and see how Ireland came to its current position on this notoriously complex conflict. Before we go any further, by the way, we have to say that we actually planned long ago to make episodes on different aspects of this story. Uh, But in this episode, we just wanted to give you a general overview of these contexts as they relate to right now. It goes without saying that there's a lot more to say on different parts of this that we're not going to be able to get into. But hopefully we'll get around to some of the things that we mentioned in this podcast more deeply in future episodes. So, Naomi, right now, let's try and explain what exactly is going on at the moment. I'm sure you've been overwhelmed trying to stay ahead of the information that's been flooding into international media over the last few days. So maybe you can describe to us uh, what do you understand is happening right now? Okay, so the current situation as it stands is this. On Saturday, Hamas militants managed to break through the border from Gaza into Israel, and they killed, at the latest count, at least 1,200 people, mostly civilians, as well as kidnapping dozens. And in response, Israel has pounded the Gaza Strip with airstrikes and may be preparing for a ground invasion. At the time of recording, the death toll, according to Palestinian authorities, is 900 people. An Irish citizen is among those who were missing from a music festival that was attacked when the Hamas fighters came across the border from Gaza. Her name is Kim Damti. She's 22. Her mother's from Port Leash and she has family in Leash. She has both Israeli and Irish citizenship and most recently was back in Leash this summer for her cousin's wedding. She was last heard of as she made contact by phone when she was fleeing a rocket barrage to a car with a friend. Overall, at least 260 people were killed at that music festival, which was taking place close to the border with Gaza. Most of them were gunned down. 
Okay, so we need to really kind of step back and take a moment here. Um, first of all, because so much has happened so quickly in the last few days, and it's been quite hard to digest the details, uh, but also just because of the scale of this, just, you know, this has been unimaginably horrific in all sorts of ways. And it's important, I think, to kind of flesh that out, you know, like the the implications and just the scale of this. Yeah, So the attack by Hamas was unprecedented and unexpected, and I think it's really caused international shock. Um, The details and the cruelty of it, I think, have really horrified people, um, including because of the targeting of young people at a music festival and the killing of families in their homes. Um, The death toll suggests that this is the single biggest um, loss of life of Jewish people on a single day since the Holocaust. And anyone familiar with this conflict would predict that Israel would respond with huge military force, and it has begun to do so. It's also called up 300,000 reservists to its army, which signals preparation for a major conflict. At their time of recording, Israel is thought to be preparing a ground invasion of Gaza. And that means the people in Gaza, about 2 million million of them, are basically trapped. Um, Their food, electricity and water has been cut off. The crossings to Israel and Egypt are closed and they have nowhere to go. And the place is being bombarded from the air. So the images from within Gaza are like hell on earth. There's great concern now about the potential for this to spiral into a wider wider regional conflict. That's because Israel is surrounded by enemies and some may now see this as an opportunity. Uh, Hamas called on the Lebanese Islamist group Hezbollah to join it in its fight Both of those groups are supported by Iran. There's already been clashes along Israel's borders with Syria and Lebanon. And this may also have destabilizing implications for Egypt, which controls the crossing from Gaza into the Sinai Peninsula. In Sinai, there have been various militant groups active at different times in the past, and Cairo is going to come under extreme pressure to let Palestinians out. Its position is that it doesn't want to allow the Palestinian population of Gaza to essentially be ethnically cleansed into the Sinai. Mm. More broadly, the international implications of this is that it violently interrupts a process of normalization of relations that Israel had been pursuing with Arab states, including Saudi Arabia, which basically just can't continue in the context of a conflict like this. It also completely takes away the attention of the United States um, off the invasion of Ukraine. Um, And that may have major repercussions for Europe. Another aspect is that many of the hostages that were taken by Hamas have dual citizenship, which may lead to more complex international entanglement. Okay, so yeah, thanks for uh, rounding that up, because that's a lot. There's so much, um, there's so many factors here that are feeding into this situation so just to to bring this situation down to uh, like the most basic parts, let's be clear about the different actors here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Hamas is an Islamist military group. It's been around since the late 1980s. And the name is actually an acronym. It translates to uh, Islamic Resistance Movement. And it's the more hardline of two major political parties in the Palestinian territories. Uh, it's committed to violent resistance against Israel, which it views as an illegitimate state. Since 2007, Hamas has been in control of the Gaza Strip. And that's a narrow piece of land. It's about 10 kilometers wide and 41 kilometers long, bordered by Israel, Egypt and the Mediterranean Sea. Together with Egypt, Israel controls access to this territory of Gaza, including what can come in and out. And Israel argues that it must do this for its own security. Gaza is extremely impoverished and it's actually one of the most densely populated places on the planet. 
According to the United Nations, 80% of Gazans rely on humanitarian aid to survive, and half the population who live there, by the way, are children. Now, poll results vary, but before this attack, it was estimated that Hamas had quite broad support in Gaza. Uh, It had the backing of somewhere around half the adults in the territory, which meant, of course, that about a half the adults in the territory didn't back it. This, of course, may have changed, is probably changing right now in the current circumstances. On the other side, the modern state of Israel emerged from the ashes of the Holocaust, and survivors of the Nazi attempt to exterminate Jews in Europe played an important role in founding it. Israel declared independence in 1948, and it became a member of the United Nations a year later. This was after decades of Jewish migration to a place that they saw as their historical homeland, inspired by the Zionist movement. This was a movement that emerged in Central and Eastern Europe in the 19th century in response to the persecution of Jewish people, and it became dominant um, after the Holocaust. In essence, it promoted the establishment of a Jewish homeland in the area corresponding to the land of Israel in Jewish tradition going back to ancient times. After the foundation of Israel, there were repeated wars with neighbours over its borders and its security throughout the decades. Okay, so more recently, Naomi, as I understand it, there have been rising tensions between Israel and the Palestinians under this hardline government of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And that is because his government has endorsed a pro-settler policy, and that means more encroachment of Israeli settlers uh, onto land that is internationally recognised as Palestinian territory and supposed to be the basis for a two-state solution to the conflict, something that we'll talk about in in a minute. Yeah, the two-state solution to the conflict, just to be clear, that's the idea of resolving this situation with a Palestinian state and an Israeli state living side by side according to internationally recognised borders. So Prime Minister Netanyahu has come under heavy criticism from within Israel itself in the wake of Saturday's attack, both for failing to prevent the attack and also for running risks with Israel's security by overextending its armed forces, by stoking tensions with Palestinians through these policies. Prior to this attack, um, the conflict was already claiming lives. It's just rumbled on for years. Rockets are fired into Israel all the time from various armed groups in Gaza. And there's also constant violence and harassment against Palestinians by Israelis. Consistently over the years, this conflict has exacted a heavier death toll among Palestinians than Israelis. But we're here, of course, to look at the Irish context uh, in relation to all this. So let's take a look at that. Um, So for quite some time, as we said at the top of the episode, Ireland has been recognised as among the most supportive to Palestinians of all European countries. So that might strike some listeners as odd or kind of random. How would you explain this, Naomi? Yeah, among the most supportive, if not the most supportive to Palestinians of Mm. all European countries. Um, So why is that? Well, let's start off with the aspect that most listeners will probably be aware of. We've mentioned it in previous episodes. The two sides of the Israel-Palestine conflict have long been adopted by rival camps in Northern Ireland. The Palestinian flag is, is flown in Republican areas and the Israeli flag is flown in loyalist areas. So there is vicarious identification with the two sides of this conflict and a level of engagement and deep feeling about it that is quite unusual for another an overseas conflict. Yeah, it is unusual. Uh, this came up before, notably, when we were discussing Loyalist bonfires on the 12th of July. Mm-hmm. Um, so you might remember that it isn't unusual to see Palestinian flags being burnt on these bonfires alongside the Irish flag. 
And at the same time, you'll sometimes see the Israeli flag flown in loyalist neighborhoods alongside the Union Jack. So there's a there's a kind of a binary that's created there mm-hmm. between the two. I should mention here also that identification with international conflicts um, goes beyond that. It goes beyond just Israel and Palestine. So you'll also see sometimes symbols of Basque separatism or Catalan independence on murals in more Republican areas uh, of Northern Ireland, for instance. Uh, but the identification with Israel or Palestine is a particularly deeply ingrained binary um, to the extent that their respective flags have been flown at football matches between the predominantly nationalist Celtic FC and the predominantly unionist Rangers FC, so those two famous rival football clubs in Scotland. So that's one aspect of all this. But then there's a broader context, of course, of Irish support for Palestine, which is very evident south of the border too, and which is frequently evident in Irish government policy. So how would you describe this identification of people in Ireland with this particular conflict? If I were to sum up the identification of Irish people with Palestinians, to put it simply, they see Palestinians as victims of settler colonialism. And in that respect, they see a shared history with Ireland's colonisation from Britain, and they feel a great deal of empathy. This feeling is prevalent both among ordinary people and their political representatives, including the most senior politicians. We've spoken a little bit before about the Irish attitude to security and defence, And I think that Israel and Palestine are part of the background to that, um, which I would say help form those beliefs. I would say among the the public, there's a bit of distaste for the militarized nature of Israel um, and also towards the very strong military support of Israel by the United States. That's quite an unpopular part of US foreign policy. Broadly, I would say there's something like an instinctive sympathy with Palestinians as the weaker side in the conflict militarily they're perceived as the underdogs. Let's consider a little bit of the history of all this. Um, Just from the research that we've done, I I was surprised actually at how this all plays out in history between uh, these two political discourses, let's say. Mm -hmm. First of all, like if you think about it, there are some obvious parallels in the historical timelines here. So let's start at the beginning here. So after World War I, the territories of Palestine and Transjordan were brought under the administration of the British Empire. And that was uh, called the Mandate of Palestine. So what's that? So this mandate, it was established in the early 1920s, just at the time when the War of Independence was beginning to rage in Ireland. And regular listeners might remember that many of the black and tan paramilitaries who had, be, who had been used or deployed to suppress the Irish Revolution were redeployed directly from Ireland to Palestine during mm. those years. So from that point of view, Ireland and Palestine in many ways fell into the same global discourse of imperial governance and, you know, various strands of resistance to that governance. So there's a geopolitical parallel right away. And I did notice when we were researching our episodes on the Irish War of Independence, quite how often Palestine was mentioned. It comes up a lot in, you know, speeches or in newspapers as a kind of comparison or an analogy uh, in various documents from both sides. So it seems like it wasn't uncommon for those two situations to be discussed in the same breath. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. Now, um, a figure who is really interesting in these years is an Irish politician named Robert Briscoe. Uh, He was born in 1894 to an Orthodox Jewish family in Dublin, just south of the neighbourhood of Portobello, which was once known as Little Jerusalem. Mm. And Briscoe came from a family that was committed to the Home Rule movement, but then he himself became an ardent Republican. So he joined the IRA, he was stationed under Michael Collins, he fought in the War of Independence, he fought in the Civil War on the anti-treaty side, he went on to become one of the founding members of Fianna Fáil, alongside Eamon de Valera, 
and he stood as an elective representative for Fianna Fáil in the Irish independent state for 38 years. Mm. And after that, he uh, went on to become the first Jewish Lord Mayor of Dublin in 1956. So he's this really, you know, kind of uh, like towering figure really in in 20th century politics. Yeah. Now, listen, the story of this man is completely fascinating and it it definitely deserves an episode to itself. Uh, So I'm not going to get into the details here because we have so much to talk about, but uh, I'm bringing it up mainly because it shows that this history isn't as straightforward as you might presume. So Briscoe, for instance, was extremely close friends with de Valera. He became a leading figure in the de Valera era of politics. He and Dev even made a state visit to Israel together in 1950. At the same time, then in the 1930s, Briscoe became interested in an organization called the New Zionist Organization, which was part of a movement called Revisionist Zionism. And that basically advocated for Jewish sovereignty on both sides of the Jordan River. So in that capacity... The revisionist Zionist movement opposed both Arab and British control in this territory. Mm. And Briscoe actually acted as an advisor to the Zionist paramilitary called the Irgun, um, using his experiences of guerrilla war in the Irish War of Independence. So already, you know, this kind of overturns our uh, assumptions, right, you know, of, Mm. of what this relationship might be, you know, historically. But to complicate matters even further... Something that's interesting is that one of the main goals of the revisionist Zionist movement was to oppose any potential partition of the Mandate of Palestine. So the Mandate of Palestine exists for about three decades between the 1920s and the late 1940s. Mm. And partition was very much on the cards for the second half of that period, at least. It had been proposed by the British in a 1937 report, so it was very much in the air. It was being proposed as a way to resolve unrest in the territory. This is at a time, of course, when the British Empire is partitioning territories all around the place. Um, (laughs) And uh, researcher Kevin McCarthy of University College Cork has written about this in a really interesting article called Eamon de Valera's Relationship with Robert Briscoe, which you can read in the Irish Studies and International Affairs Journal. And he suggests that this is the point where we see kind of Zionism and Republicanism overlapping Mm. in this kind of curious way uh, because both de Valera and Briscoe rejected partition as a concept, right? So what he points out is de Valera starts making speeches in opposition to the partition of Palestine in order to consolidate his rejection of the partition of Ireland on the international stage. And he and Briscoe were very much in this together, their interests colliding. They were close friends, I think, as well, weren't they? Very close friends. They were really Mm. in it together. Remember, they were founding members of Fianna Fáil together, you know, Mm. and there's there's a lot to say about that relationship. And throwing that in there to kind of show how complex this is, right? That there's already an overlapping political discourse here between Ireland and the Middle East, but not in the way that you might expect. Yeah, it's so interesting, Tim. It reminds us us that although we now see like Zionism and Irish Republicanism as oppositional beliefs, this wasn't always the case. Like back before the 1930s, there was quite a lot of sympathy in Ireland towards the Zionist movement because of a general feeling that both Irish people and Jewish people had suffered oppression. Um, And this kind of, you know, it was to change later. But that moment in time is also captured by the family history of the current president of Israel, um, whose name is Isaac Herzog. Isaac Herzog has Irish roots. Um, His father was born in Ireland and was an Irish citizen, which I think under Irish law makes him automatically an Irish citizen as well. Although I don't Mm -hmm. know if he actually identifies as Irish. 
So President Herzog's grandfather was called Yitzhak Halevi Herzog, and he was the chief rabbi of Ireland from 1921 to 1936. He supported the first Dáil and the Irish Republican cause during the Irish War of Independence. And so for that reason, he became known as the Sinn Féin rabbi, because uh, this was because of his both his Irish nationalist beliefs and his reputed fluent Irish. Um, so his son, who's the current president's father, Chaim Herzog, he was born in Belfast in 1918 and he was raised in Dublin. He was an ardent Zionist as well as an Irish nationalist. He attended the Adelaide Road Synagogue in central Dublin and went to school at Wesley College. And he actually became the Irish youth boxing bantamweight champion, a curious part of history. Mm. Like many Irish people in the period, he later joined the British Army and he fought in the Second World War. And he actually took part in the Normandy landings. And he was among the soldiers to liberate the Nazi concentration camps, including Bergen-Belsen. He then went on to Palestine, served in the 1948 Arab-Israeli War and became the head of the IDF military intelligence branch and ultimately Israeli president himself. So this is quite a trajectory for a boy from Belfast. This is current president, his son, Isaac Herzog, remembering his father's story in a recent speech to the European Parliament to mark Holocaust Remembrance Day. My father, the sixth president of the state of Israel, Chaim Herzog, was an officer in the British Army at the time. He was born in Ireland. He was privileged to land in Normandy, cross the Rhine, and take part in the liberation of the Netherlands, Belgium, and Northern Germany. I shall never forget how he described to me the horrors that unfolded before his eyes as one of the first liberators of the death camps, including Bergen-Belsen, the human skeletons in their striped pajamas, the hell on earth, the stench, the heart of darkness. So the so-called Sinn Féin rabbi wasn't the only Zionist Irish Republican. Um, Ireland had two Jewish Lord Mayors of Cork and Dublin, as we mentioned, over the 20th century, and they both came from strong Republican backgrounds while also supporting Zionism. The first was Robert Briscoe, as you mentioned, Tim, and there was also a Lord Mayor of Cork called Gerald Goldberg in 1977. Um, they both, interestingly enough, had Lithuanian Jewish roots, and they also tried worked to try to bring Jewish refugees to Ireland from Nazi Germany during the reign of Hitler. Of course, the outbreak of World War II is this major chapter in this history, particularly uh, in the fact that the independent Irish state remained neutral during the war. Uh, now, you might reasonably assume that considering how rampant anti-Semitism was in Europe and in Ireland at that time, uh, that in the build-up to the war, anti-Semitism would have played a role in this neutrality policy. Uh, but that doesn't actually seem to be the case. So Briscoe, for instance, uh, you know, who was a Zionist, was one of the most ardent supporters of Ireland's neutrality policy uh, in the government. Uh, in fact, uh, during the 1930s as well, there was a rumour among anti-Semitic publications in mainland Europe that De Valera was secretly of Jewish descent, hmm. uh, which apparently annoyed him because he was trying to present himself as this you know, Catholic par excellence. Hmm. Um, but De Valera's association with Briscoe, and Briscoe was a big figure, tarred him in the eyes of anti-Semites. You know, so hmm. like Ireland was not in favour with anti-Semites during these years. Uh, when I say anti-Semites, I mean like publications in France or in Germany, you know, okay. which are like spreading rumours around the place. 
and also anti-Semitic groups in Ireland, right? They didn't like this at all, how close de Valera was uh, with Briscoe and things like that. So it, it just doesn't seem to uh, to have fed into it. Um, Ireland's government effectively supported the Allies, of course, you know, secretly during the war, even though it never admitted as much because it was so careful to maintain neutral status. If you want to hear more about that, we made an episode on neutrality. Um, de Valera also, very interestingly, specifically included protection for Jews in the 1937 constitution of the Irish state, mm. which was extremely unusual for the time in Europe, especially considering the looming war. And uh, he did so actually with uh, Yitzhak Herzog, who you mentioned uh, mm. just there earlier. They sat down together and decided, like, we need to put this in black and white uh, in the text. So, like, it very much says, you know, and Jews, this protection is extended to Jews, quite literally. Um, mm. And this is in the context of religious uh, freedom. Now, that said, um, Ireland was by no means a paragon of virtue, either though in this moment, so don't get the wrong idea, you know, even though you have figures like Herzog and Briscoe, they were lobbying for the state to welcome Jewish, Jewish refugees during the war. The state didn't do that. It mostly kept the doors closed to Jewish refugees. So when, when the Jews of Europe really needed them, the Irish government failed in, in a big way. Now, while the neutrality policy doesn't seem to have been driven by anti-Semitism, we need to remember that doesn't mean there was no anti-Semitism. Quite on the contrary, anti-Semitism was very much present in the country, and not least in the context of rising Catholic dominance at all levels of society in the mid-20th century. Right. And it is worth saying a little bit more about that um, anti-Semitism. So, of course, it's present in Ireland as it is um, anywhere else. Um, and it's worth saying a word about this um, because many Jewish people feel that people are harsher on Israel and treat it differently because of anti-Semitism. Then on the other side, critics of Israel sometimes feel that that accusation of anti-Semitism is used to try to silence or discredit legitimate criticism of the policy of the Israeli government, which is, of course, of course distinct from the Israeli people and distinct from Jewish people in general. And of course, critics of Israeli policy include many Jewish people among them. In history, the most notorious case of anti-Semitism in Ireland was the Limerick boycott, also known as the Limerick pogrom. That was an economic boycott against the small Jewish community of Limerick uh, between 1904 and 1906. It was accompanied by assaults and stone throwing and intimidation, and it was led by a priest. He was called Father John Cree. He was anti-Semitic and he was propagating all kinds of conspiracy theories about Jewish people in his church near to the Jewish area. This culminated in five out of 31 Jewish families leaving Limerick and that priest was ultimately denounced by his superiors and moved away. Um, over the decades, there have been fringe far-right groups at times that were active in Ireland that have been anti-Semitic. And there's also been the occasional outright anti-Semitic statement by the odd public figure, but it's not that common. Um, according to a paper by the Stephen Roth Institute for the Study of Contemporary Anti-Semitism and Racism, when Ireland adopted a very Catholic ethos in the 1930s, some Jewish people did feel institutionally excluded. And there was also some alienation at Ireland not taking a stronger stance against Nazi Germany. And then later, during the Troubles, some Jewish people felt there had been an increase in hostility when the Palestinian cause began to be taken up uh, among and identified with Irish Republicans in the north. Uh, there was a flare-up in tension when Israel invaded Lebanon in 1982, 
At that time, two Irish peacekeeping soldiers were killed and that Cork Lord Mayor, who we mentioned, Gerald Goldborg, he was re- he received death threats and he also considered leaving Ireland. At the time, a synagogue in Cork was also firebombed. And it's worth mentioning that Goldberg's father, as it happens, had been beaten up in the Limerick pogrom. How things stand now is that according to a paper by the Institute of National Security Studies at Tel Aviv University, anti-Semitic incidents in Ireland are sparse. They're not common based on the data that we have. Comparative data on levels of anti-Semitism in different countries is collected by the anti-hate group, the Anti-Defamation League. They do this global survey which pulls the public on whether they agree with various anti-Semitic statements, the common conspiracy theories and so on. And according to the results for Ireland, which are a little old because they're from 2014, but however, Ireland scores slightly below the average for anti-Semitism compared to other European countries. So Ireland has a score of 20% compared to an average of 24% for Western Europe. Denmark and Germany would be lower than Ireland, but places like Greece, for example, would be much higher with with 67%. And maybe to compare with other Anglophone countries, the UK and the United States score 10%. The paper by the Institute for National Securities Studies of Tel Aviv University did find that there can be anti-Semitism in Irish politics, and it identified some statements by politicians as having an anti-Semitic tone, It summed this up as follows, quote, Currently, large segments of the Irish public are opposed to colonialism all over the world, thus explaining the widespread Irish support for the Palestinian claims in the context of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The vocal criticism of Israel's policies sometimes has deteriorated into demonstrations of hostility towards Israel and even anti-Semitic stereotypes. So that's how they put it. So this kind of brings us then to some the more familiar uh, image of, of what we understand now from Irish government policy and these attitudes in Ireland, which is a support for Palestine as, like you said, a vi- victims of settler colonialism in that kind of perspective or view of the situation. Mm-hmm. And this perspective, I think, we can see it taking shape definitely by 1948 hmm. when the state of Israel is established. So we already have this history of kind of overlapping political discourses and now we have a, a certain kind of shift in, in how these discourses are being seen from uh, the Irish state. So Ireland didn't actually recognise the Israeli state when it was uh, declared in 1948. It didn't recognise it for a good 15 years until 1963. Hmm. But then it didn't establish diplomatic relations with Israel until 1975. Hmm. And there was no Israeli embassy in Ireland until the 1990s. So this is, you know, really, really quite new. And if we think about that period then uh, between 1948 and 1975, this is quite a long thawing out period, you Hmm. know, if, if we put it that way, between the two states. And it's this period where we see this pro-Palestine position taking shape in Ireland's international relations. And it's not to be forgotten that it's that period, too, where we have the Troubles, right? Mm. This is when conflict was raging in Northern Ireland. Um, So this pro-Palestine position that develops over that years in the Republic, you know, is completely uh, tied or interlinked with the development of pro-Israeli or pro-Palestinian support in loyalist and republican areas in Northern Ireland, respectively, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's it's overlapping there as well. The position of Ireland with Israel, the diplomatic position withdrawing the troubles, I think explains a lot why 
that conflict in particular maybe, you know, was taken up in Northern Ireland. Mm. So in the Republic, one particularly notable moment was the 1967 speech of the then Tánishta and Minister of Foreign Affairs, Frank Aiken, at the UN, at the UN General Assembly that year. That speech gained international press coverage for its outspoken support for Palestine. Mm. Um, Aiken declared that Israel had, I quote, no right whatever to annex her neighbours. And he also called for support for Palestinian refugees displaced by war. This statement, no right whatever to annex her neighbours, of course had a resonance in 1967 uh, in Ireland. This is mm. just a year or two before the outbreak of violence, uh, civil rights and um, all of this tension about Irish partition. Meanwhile, in 1980, Ireland became the first EU country to endorse the establishment of a sovereign Palestinian state that would be independent of Israel. In the words of the Department of Foreign Affairs website, quote, Since then, every Irish government has given a high priority to the achievement of a two-state solution, which is now the accepted goal of international efforts. The Middle East peace process remains a key foreign policy priority for the government. Then, of course, more recently, in 2014, both the Dáil and the Shanid passed motions calling for formal recognition of the state of Palestine. Today, this political tradition has had some pretty significant policy outcomes. Ireland has quite a strong boycott divestment sanctions or BDS movement, which tries to advance boycotts against Israeli organisations and products in response to what supporters see as a policy of apartheid against Palestinians. In 2019, the Dáil passed the Occupied Territories Bill. That's legislation that would potentially ban and criminalise trade with Israeli settlements in the West Bank. But the bill has essentially been frozen in its parliamentary progress since then. Sinn Féin, now we may speak more about this later, it's in opposition right now as a party, but it's leading in polls and it's expected to be in government after the next election. Support for Palestine is one of its major policy planks. It's one of its most identifiable policies. And it would be expected to maybe enact that Occupied Territories Bill and perhaps formally recognise the state of Palestine as it has called on the government to do that. We don't know how the current conflict will impact on those policies. Okay, right. So speaking then of the current conflict, um, considering all that we've just covered, what has Ireland's reaction been to this recent attack last Saturday? How has the government reacted to that? Well, maybe I'll start with some of the reaction that's been quite internationally visible. So some Irish politicians on the left felt their primary emphasis in the immediate aftermath of the Hamas attack should be to reiterate their solidarity with Palestinians. And I would explain that decision um, as they see overall Israel to have been the historical aggressor here, irrespective of the details of this particular attack. Nevertheless, the decision to do so has been really jarring to many observers internationally and in Ireland, and increasingly so as the extremely horrific details of the Hamas attack became more widely known with, you know, such cruel slaughter of young people and families and quite a lot of random international people as well who happened to be there, like migrant agricultural workers from Thailand, which seemed to sort of underscore the really indiscriminate nature of the violence. It's worth noting, though, and worth drawing a distinction between those reactions and the statements by the most senior Irish politicians who are either in government or high office or who aspire to be. So in the immediate aftermath of the attack, um, the most uh, senior significant figures did not go down that route, but rather put the primary emphasis 
on condemning the Hamas attacks. And that includes, although it took a little time, the president of Sinn Féin, um, Mary Lou MacDonald. Uh, she condemned the Hamas attacks as horrific and said that the killing of civilians had to be condemned outright. Now, it's worth pausing on that because it's really significant uh, because Mary Lou MacDonald had for quite some time the Palestinian flag as her bio photo on Twitter. So no picture of her face, just the Palestinian flag. Mm. Uh, she still has the Palestinian flag as mm. her banner photo. She is widely expected based on current polls, um, you know, if they bear out, to be the next Taoiseach. And when I asked her last year about what her foreign policy priorities would be if that happened, she named Palestine as, you know, on the top. That's a quick question. Thanks very much. Um, if polls bear out, you may well be in uh, government north and south soon. Um, could you explain here with an international audience, how will your foreign policy differ to um, the Irish governments of the past? What will be your top three, let's say, issues that you want to push on the international stage? Thanks. Uh, we will be very firmly asserting our Ireland's position as a non-aligned, as a military neutral. Uh, we want to see that uh, position recognised and embraced at a European level and internationally. I, I won't elaborate on the Irish experience of colonisation and partition and conflict and all of that, but that's where we come from. So Irish foreign policy has to be true to that tradition, not in a passive way, in a very active way. Uh, we will be very firm on uh, issues around self-determination. I'm, I'm going to instance in particular the question of Palestine um, because it is our firm view that we need international courage and leadership on that matter. It is clear that we have uh, an apartheid regime, uh, that the Israeli state uh, actively confiscates land, actively discriminates um, and oppresses Palestinian citizens day and daily. I think Europe needs to be honest about that. And I think we need to exert maximum international pressure to bring that uh, conflict to a resolution, to a, a two-state uh, resolution. So given this, I would say that the fact that Mary Lou MacDonald unequivocally condemned Hamas and the attacks on civilians, that reflects the absolute overwhelming public horror that there is at those attacks irrespective of what the existing political context was. And it also reflects Sinn Féin's aspiration to be in government and a recognition that, you know, to do so, it needs to kind of act in a statesman-like way, which takes into account the international context. Then we have the Irish president, Michael D. Higgins, uh, who would be seen as having a left-wing anti-colonial outlook. Uh, he put out a statement that said, I quote, any attacks on innocent civilians, such as those horrific scenes witnessed at the Supernova Music Festival and elsewhere, are deeply reprehensible. Further attacks and reprisals of the same degree will lead to further loss of innocent life. He added, I quote, Diplomatic failure to meaningfully address a conflict, one that has been raised every year at the United Nations, is bearing a terrible fruit for all those involved. It should remind us that it is the responsibility of all of us to return and to engage with all of the sources of conflict, accepting the right of Israel to defend itself and of Palestinian people to enjoy the rights to which they are entitled. Um, Higgins expressed condolences to all the families of the victims and said his thoughts were particularly with the family of Kim Damty. So how does Ireland's response stand out? What has differed in Ireland's response to these attacks compared to others, let's say, in other Western countries? There are two key distinctions. 
One, you will read, as you may have noticed there in the statement by President Higgins, that there is acknowledgement of the existing situation on the ground prior to the attacks, with Palestinians being blockaded in Gaza and Israel occupying land that's internationally recognised as Palestinian territory and imposing repressive conditions on the civilians living there. The second part that you may note as well are the calls for restraint and calls for restraint particularly in Israel's response. Anyone familiar with how this conflict has gone in the past would know that Israel would retaliate with massive airstrikes on Gaza. And foreseeing that, the Irish government called for there to be no escalation in violence because it's inevitably that when you bombard a densely populated area from the air, there are going to be civilian casualties. Ireland also worked in the course of Saturday to try to get the European Union as a whole to make that call for restraint and non-escalation, but it failed to do so. That wasn't, that wasn't accepted by other EU member states. So these positions contrast to, you know, the statements that you might hear from the United States and those of many other European countries, where there's been more of an emphasis on the importance of outright and unambiguous support for Israel. Okay, yeah, let, let's talk a little bit more then about the context of the EU uh, in Ireland's reaction. So mm. maybe can you, you walk us through how this has gone down in the last few days? I can bring you through it in granular detail, Tim. Maybe I'll try and sum <laughs> it up. Can, yeah. uh, this is really what I've been kind of covering and reporting on for the last few days. So as I mentioned on Saturday, this was when the attack by Hamas took place. And in the immediate aftermath, um, there were negotiations between the 27 members of the European Union to come up with a joint declaration, a joint statement about what had happened. Um, and so there were phone calls uh, going back between different capitals in Europe trying to come up with consensus wording on that. And during those negotiations, Ireland, along with Luxembourg and Denmark, pushed for the EU's appeal to include uh, an, a, you know, a call for not non-escalation of the conflict. Um, mm. But in the end, the three states failed and there wasn't any mention of non-escalation in the in, in the first EU statements. And that's that's because it was opposed by others, in particular, I understand Austria, as they wanted, you know, to show solidarity with Israel and put more an emphasis, more of an emphasis on its right to defend itself. Um, now, something quite interesting then happened in the aftermath of that. So those three countries, Ireland, Luxembourg and Denmark, they were correctly named as having a joint position on this statement in a report that issued from an Israeli television station over the weekend. But they were accused of not calling for a non-escalation, but they were accused of instead having refused to describe Hamas as a terrorist group. And that, that's not true. They didn't do that. Hamas is deemed a terrorist group by the EU, and that requires the consensus of all member states. So they have accepted Hamas, Hamas as a terrorist group. The claim that they had done that, though, the incorrect claim, it went viral, caused a lot of outrage, uh, particularly, you know, in the context of the horror that, you know, people were seeing what Hamas had done. Mm. Um, and it's interesting because what's happened there is this is, e this is either a rumor that got distorted, but which had some kernel of truth in it because those three states were the ones that were pushing for something else in the statement. Or it was a deliberate attempt to discredit the EU countries that are seen as quote-unquote soft on Palestine. But I think it's really interesting that that happened. It's such a, um, a sensitive situation right now. Every single word, you know, could have such enormous consequences at this level. Mm -hmm. What is Ireland's position now, most recently? So as we mentioned, as, you know, the most 
one of the most, if not the most sympathetic to Palestinians of all EU member states. Ireland is at, you know, one end of the spectrum in terms of views on this conflict. What these attacks have revealed is that there's a very deep split among the 27 member states. And Ireland has, I think, been a little bit at odds in some of what's happened. So in the immediate aftermath of the attacks, the the European Commission, which is like the central civil service of the EU and has a powerful president and a foreign policy section, uh, took a really, you know, very public, very firm position of stating solidarity with Israel. Uh, the commission uh, headquarters projected an enormous Israeli flag outside of it over the weekend and also hoisted the Israeli flag alongside the EU one. EU want to fly together. And the President von der Leyen was also, she made a series of statements saying that the EU stood with Israel in what was to come in the weeks ahead, which seems to be a reference of, it seems to be a signal that the EU would stand with Israel in its response to what had happened, not just, at, you know, in the, mm. in, in the immediate aftermath of the attacks. So that that decision by the Commission, I you know, it caused a lot of discomfort in Ireland, um, both among the government and politicians, other politicians, because it would seem to endorse whether whatever retaliation Israel was going to launch. And it was completely foreseeable that this would come with immense human suffering and civilian deaths, because as I mentioned, Gaza is incredibly densely populated and people are blockaded from leaving. Half the ch- people who live there are children. And as we mentioned, you know, not all of the adults support Hamas. And sure enough, quite soon, the Israeli defense minister announced that there would be a total siege of Gaza with no food, water, electricity or gas allowed to pass. And then started, um, you know, the heavy air bombardment, which we've which we've seen, as was foreseeable. It's had a significant civilian impact at the current count. 260 children have been killed in that bombing. Now, if you ask the European Commission, they say their position is completely consistent. They were acting in line with past policy because when there was a terrorist attack in Paris in 2015, they projected the French flag. And after the terrorist attack in Belgium in 2016, they projected the Belgian flag. Um, It is a little different, of course, because both Israel and Hamas described these events more or less from the outset as a war. Um, The EU has, of course, projected the flag of one side in a war before, and that's Ukraine. They did so on the evening that Russia attacked Ukraine. But perhaps, you know, the slight difference is that whereas the EU leaders had all met and unequivocally condemned the invasion of Ukraine by Russia um, before that was done, this is an issue and a conflict that's much, has much more divided views among the EU member states. And they hadn't yet um, come together to discuss it. In the last 24 or 48 hours before recording, there was a lot of confusion about the question of European aid. Messages going out on Twitter, quite quick reactions going on. Can you explain what's happening there or perhaps more more importantly, what the consequences of that confusion have been? This has been an incredibly embarrassing um, sequence of events, I think, for the European Union. Um, so on Monday, this series of tweets appeared by Hungary's commissioner, to the in the European Commission, each member state of the EU has a commissioner. They're a bit like government ministers, and they're appointed to serve in the European Commission. This particular guy, Oliver Varhelyi, he's in charge of neighbourhood and enlargement. Neighbourhood means relations with nearby states, so he has a say over things like aid going to areas like the Palestinian territories. And he put up a series of tweets saying, 
that all payments of aid to Palestinians would be immediately stopped, okay? And that there would be a total right. review of all the aid <clears throat> um, to see if any of it had inadvertently been uh, financing terrorist activities. Now, this declaration mm. completely took diplomats and journalists by surprise because the EU countries were, they hadn't met to discuss this. They were due to discuss that very issue the following day. Um, and we'd also been told that morning by the European Commission that there wasn't going to be any suspension of aid and that the, they, the EU ministers were going to discuss it and nothing had been decided and also that no aid had gone to support terrorist activities in the first place. So it was completely in contrary to what they'd been saying just hours previously. So in, in the aftermath of these tweets being launched, it, it was so strange. There was no official statement from the European Commission. And diplomats were telling me that they were scrambling to find out if Varheli, the commissioner, had the legal authority to do this just on his own back, just to make a decision like that. And quite quickly, there began to be, you know, criticism of this coming from EU member states, Luxembourg, Spain, Belgium, most of all Ireland. Ireland issued a statement from its uh, Department of Foreign Affairs saying there was no legal basis for a decision like this and that it objected to cutting off aid and um, like an individual commissioner couldn't make a decision like this. The mm. particular concern among the EU countries that are that object to the idea of cutting aid is that it's it would affect all Palestinians. It would be a blanket measure. It would include those who don't support Hamas. And by the way, you know, EU aid, a lot of it is paid out through the Palestinian Authority. That's Hamas's rival, right? They are, they're dominated by the more moderate and secular Palestinian political party Fatah, which has renounced violence. And, it, you know, the Palestinian authorities has like normal relations with the European Union and the EU helps to pay for stuff like public services there in the West Bank. And hitting all aid that would cut off funding to all kinds of NGOs and United Nations missions, all kinds of things. Um, and in the eyes of, you know, critics, this would it would blanket target all Palestinians in a way that, conf that conflates Palestinians with Hamas, similar, you know, to the logic that would justify the indiscriminate targeting of Israeli civilians because of the actions of their government. So that kind of, you know, drew this big negative response. I understand that, the you know, the head of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, actually called up Charles Michel, the president of the European Council, and were like, you can't cut aid. You know, it caused this massive international reaction. This tweet went absolutely viral. It's worth pointing out the EU is the single biggest donor of aid to Palestinians. That's why this matters. And obviously, they're about to face a very dire humanitarian situation. So it has like really profound consequences. Okay, yeah. So the stakes are just so, so high here. So after all that confusion, um, what actually happened with that question about aid? What's, what's going to happen with the, with the Palestinian aid? It's a real intrigue. The European Commission, like, it took six hours for them to come out with a statement. And then it was this bizarre statement which said that no payments would be made because no payments were planned. But you seem mm. to sort of, you know, withdraw what the Hungarian commissioner had said. And then, you know, we, we were asking them questions in the aftermath of it. And they said that the Hungarian commissioner's tweet was not an official EU commission statement. But, you know, it seem, what seems to have happened here, right, is that that particular guy, Varheli, he has form on doing this. He previously blocked funding for education in the Palestinian territories. And he did that even though EU member states supported the funding being released. And the money was held up for so long that Ireland, along with other 
um, member states ended up clamoring and calling for the money to be released publicly, saying that Varhelia did huh. not have a mandate to be doing that, to be holding up the aid. So what appears to have happened here is that Varhelia, remember, he's an appoint he's an appointment by the government of Viktor Orban, the hardline nationalist government in Hungary. They're extremely pro-Israel. Um, and like his position is just very, very pro-Israel. He seems to have seized the moment to try and push forward a policy agenda. We don't know. The European Commission said he did that without consulting anybody, so that he hadn't consulted President von der Leyen, he hadn't consulted other commissioners. But the the key question for me is, did he feel he had implicit support or unofficial support, or had there been some re- feeling that he, that he did that this would be the policy? Because mm. you know, I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case. Um, because it would be odd if the commissioner were to announce something like this, which was completely incorrect, and for to, and for there to be absolutely no consequences, which is what it seems like now. You know, the commission has said that there won't be any reprimand or anything to him, which to me suggests that yeah. maybe he had some sort of implicit support in doing it. Finally, yesterday, then, the the actual EU foreign ministers, you know, Michal Martin, the Tornishta, and all of his counterparts in the other 27 EU member states, they actually finally had their meeting and they managed to discuss this issue of the Palestinian aid. And what we were told afterwards um, was that an overwhelming majority of them support the continuing of aid. They do not support uh, cutting off of aid. And particularly the question of cutting off humanitarian aid was not even on the table the chief diplomat, the foreign policy chief of the European Union, who was present at that meeting, he told us that if anything, aid is going to have to be increased, not decreased. Um, and, you know, he was extremely firm that, you know, this this whole aid question, it was continuing. He said that he would personally ensure that there were no delay delays to payments. He said that the, the commission is going to review funding to make sure none of it is inadvertently supporting terrorist activities but you know they say that the you know all of this stuff is audited it's all going to ngos and and un groups and so on so you know this should be the case anyway to begin with and we also heard from him um the first kind of caution i suppose in terms of declarations of support to israel um and that was you know, he he very much warned of the risk of this becoming a wider regional conflict, and he he called that there should be no escalation, as Ireland had wanted um, the EU to call for on Saturday. And he also said that Israel was breaking international law with its decision to cut off food, water, and electricity to Gaza. So he said, you know, that that had to be reversed. What I would say this conflict has revealed, and that the last the last few days have revealed is that it's it's illustrated the divisions among European countries about this particular conflict. And in this mm. context, Ireland has emerged as a particularly prominent actor in those divisions because it represents one end of the spectrum on the views uh, towards Israel and Palestine. Um, and it's significant because that puts Ireland in a very visible, internationally visible position and also quite a significant position as well. Okay, listen, thank you so much, Naomi, for walking us through that. We've gone through a lot in this episode and clearly the situation is still ongoing and advancing rapidly. So we might be coming back to this in the future. Obviously, 
uh, everyone out there, we're all too aware that this is a very difficult and highly sensitive topic. Uh, we've tried to cover it as evenly as we can, but there is actually no, you know, good way to do that really. Um, and we recognize that there are millions more points, millions more details that haven't made it into this short discussion. Uh, but thanks for bearing with us uh, as we try to just give an overall context of, of Ireland's position uh, in what's going on right now. Naomi, thanks so much for sharing your reporting. I presume you'll be writing plenty about this in the Irish Times in the in the weeks to come. Yeah, exactly. I'll continue. I've been reporting on this every day, including the sort of the fallout, what Ireland has been doing and stuff. And yeah, there should be a big piece coming out about all of this this weekend. Okay, so if you want regular updates, then go and check out the Irish Times and see Naomi's articles. And thanks, of course, uh, as always, to our Patreon supporters who keep the show running. If you want to join up to Patreon and support the podcast, you can find us at www.patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport. And just before we go, I'd actually like to give a quick shout out to patron Liam, who recently suggested this topic for one of our Patreon listener question episodes, which are available over on Patreon. And I think, uh, Liam, you got Morgan more than you bargained for with this uh, full episode, so I hope it answers your questions. Uh, but for now, it's Slon from me. Okay, Slon, everyone. <laughs>